What sort of home did you grow up in? I'm talking about the literal bricks and mortar. Was it a three bedroom on a big grassy block in the suburbs? Or was it an apartment in a capital city? We're well known as a country of big cities. There have been very low density in the past. And I think there's still a, a long-standing regard for the idea of a, having a single family home on a block of land, you know, where you can shut the door and not be interfered with. Professor Bill Randolph is a member of the City Futures Research Centre at the University of New South Wales and he's a Fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. Where you grew up and the kind of house you lived in has probably shaped your choice of home as an adult, if you've been lucky enough to have a choice, that is. So if you grew up in a neighbourhood that was close to the city but still had a backyard big enough for a hill's hoist and a game of cricket... Maybe that's what you want for your family as well. That's long gone in, in real terms. Certainly over the last 20, 30 years, you will not find a standard quarter-acre block being developed in, in an Australian city. But it's up there in, in people's minds. And I think the other side of it, of course, is then the sort of threat of density coming to a garden near you is something which gets a pretty visceral reaction from, from many people. The great Australian dream has shifted. A few decades ago, 55% of people in their 20s and 30s were homeowners. Now that's closer to 40%. But it's not only home ownership that's becoming unachievable for young adults. Finding an affordable rental in a capital city these days is gruelling and it has only gotten harder since the pandemic. In the first quarter of 2023, Australia's population was nearly 26.5 million people and our annual growth rate was 2.2%. That's around an extra 563,000 people every year through natural increase and migration. But density is still a dirty word. I think it's actually the fear of the unknown. Darina Pajani is an Associate Professor in Urban Planning at the University of Queensland. How many people in Australia actually have the experience of living in a high-density setting? Not very many. Most people have grown up in a suburb, in a single-family home, with a little patch of a garden, and that's the experience they have. So they don't know that density could actually be very beautiful and vibrant. In a high-density setting, you might be able to meet your neighbours more rather than less, and also you may be able to have high-quality public transport, which we don't have in many places in Australia at the moment. So how do we get density right so that the people who need a home can access something that's both affordable and livable, and the people who already have a home don't feel quite so uneasy that their great Australian dream might become their worst nightmare. This is Seriously Social, I'm Ginger Gorman, and today on the podcast, we have a housing crisis in this country. The question is, will we as Australians sacrifice our low density suburban lifestyle to help solve it? So why is density such a dirty word in Australia? Here's Professor Bill Randolph again. At the base, I guess, it's about a threat to your 
assets and your, your lifestyle. Well, ideologically, many people have a problem with high-density living. On a practical level, there are a lot of problems associated with low-density developments. Low-density suburbanisation has been linked to congestion, expensive infrastructure rollout, uh, and who pays for it, which is pretty critical. Uh, issues around sustainability, the single-family home is seen as an unsustainable way of of carrying on, particularly the very large sort of McMansions type housing we've seen recently, very energy intensive and so on. Higher density housing is seen to be better for people because it means you can walk around the place as opposed to drive everywhere. And of course, it improves, we're told, accessibility to existing transportation routes, particularly trying to get that shift away from uh, extensive car use into the use of public transport. So there's been a big push in the last 20 years, particularly in Australia and elsewhere, to build around transport corridors and transport nodes. Transport-orientated development is basically called. There are counters to that, that in a sense, uh, building high-rise towers made out of concrete, steel, glass, and so on. There's a lot of energy goes into building them. Yes, they are potentially more walkable, but quite a lot of the outcomes that we've seen around us don't appear to be particularly appealing. You know, they're not the sort of uh, walkable neighbourhoods we tend to associate with the density you get in European cities, for example. So we kind of haven't quite produced the sort of densification that the planners and others would like to see. Where are we going wrong then? What is stopping Australian cities from growing up instead of sprawling out? I do think there's an issue here about how we've done densification. A lot of it leaves a lot to be desired, I think. That's one of the problems. And we're not really importing the sort of European-style density, which you get in Amsterdam, which looks very nice and has been there for a long time. We're getting something else, very much of an Australian type of densification, which, again, has, has problems. I know your work looks a lot into the idea of getting density right, and I'm just thinking as you're talking that in cities like Amsterdam, where I've lived, it's very bicycle-friendly, it's very public transport-friendly. All of those lifestyle aspects are woven into the high density. So, in fact, it doesn't negatively impact your lifestyle. No, that's because Amsterdam was built in that way for that mode of transport. Australian cities, other than the very downtown areas, which um, grew out 150 years ago, have been built around car transport. Uh, So you've got a very different urban form there. And it's all very well to say Amsterdam's a fantastic place to live. You know, it is a very pleasant place to live, but it's not a 21st century city. It's an 18th century city, possibly a little bit older. It was built in a different time for a different context, and then it's, it's flat as well. <laughs> so, you know, cycling around, walking around in, in, in that sort of areas is, is, is quite, uh, quite feasible. It's very difficult to retrofit an Amsterdam-style city back into uh, a 21st century Australian city. And a lot of it is to do with the way in which we own and divide the land underneath it. The land ownership patterns in places like Amsterdam date back many years, many decades. Uh, Here we have a very different land ownership system and a lot of what we see is is driven by the requirements of the development industry to do profitable development. 
Bill says most housing in Australia falls into either low density or high density, but there's a missing middle. Three-storey walk-ups, four-storey walk-ups, which just don't get built anymore because the development industry finds it much more profitable to build as high as possible on whatever piece of land uh, they can get. So I think the polarisation between that sort of low-density, old-style sprawl in some respects, although it is denser than the previous sprawl, I have to say, and that much higher density in a city renewal is what's uh, squeezed out the, the missing middle. And there's a very strong argument that this, the missing middle is actually what people want. You know, if you want to downsize and you're living in a, in a low-density suburb, there really isn't much anywhere to go apart from to try and get a, you know, a two-bedroom flat in a, in, a, in a tower block. So that's a critical thing. The, the way in which the development industry works, the consolidation of ownership in, in that industry, the, the squeezing out of the smaller developer who would be good to develop that, that missing middle is one of the problems we have today. And the planning industry, of course, is, has promoted that. So if we know that some people want to live in medium-density developments, why doesn't the market meet that demand? I think there's a myth that somehow housing, like almost anything really, is is suddenly driven by some consumer demand, which suddenly demands certain products. The high-density industry in Australia, as elsewhere actually, is pretty much driven by an investor market. Now, you know, this is something which we don't often talk about, but 60-70% of apartments sold in the last decade have probably been sold to investors, not to individuals who have bought it for themselves to live in. If the people who are developing and buying high-density apartments are never going to live in them, what does this mean for the renters and investors in the long run? So I think there are places where there's going to be a rapid turnover of, of rental tenants over time, uh, landlords themselves may get disincentivized to invest in the properties. So we're going to get a, a potential down the track, if we're not careful, for uh, a devalued, very high-density sector. Then you've got to think through, well, what are we going to replace it with? How are we going to replace it? And who's going to replace it in 30, 40, 50 years' time? And I don't think we've thought that one through at all at this stage. But there are groups, maybe not on the policy-making level, but smaller local groups thinking a lot about how best to replace bad housing. In Melbourne, there's Nightingale Housing, a not-for-profit that's been building socially, financially and environmentally sustainable apartments. Architect Lisa Garner has been working on one of their projects. It's about getting residents together and building apartments with an intentional group of people, but they talk a lot about community size something more like not more than four apartments per level and not more than six storeys and about having a certain number of residents so that the common areas in the building, like whether they're on the rooftop or on the ground, do get used well and like there's a sweet spot in terms of people to take ownership of those common areas but also just the right number of people to not feel like strangers. Lisa Garner's passion for nailing medium density housing comes from her experience of living in Berlin. I think it made me yeah, optimistic about density and see like the positive side of living a bit closer to other people, having that sense of community even within a development. Specifically, the apartments in Berlin, what I realised was there's nothing like radically exceptional about them. It's really just the way that they're planned to get good natural light. Like 
the sort of higher ceilings it sort of feels more generous and and that's it like the natural light ventilation good floor plan high ceilings is kind of all you need to create really good housing sounds simple enough right so again i ask what's stopping us there are a lot of challenges the first one is planning rules and regulations for a long time planning codes have been supporting just subdivision. Like the easiest thing for an owner builder to do is subdivide into two or three townhouses, which is like some density, but it's not enough. And the outcomes are somewhat suboptimal, like half the side is a driveway to fit, you know, two or three private garages. And there's not great amenity in terms of landscape. And that has a lot to do with the planning rules. As Lisa acknowledges, our homes are precious emotionally and financially. Australian residents having the right to object to developments that are happening around them is like, obviously it's a good thing that we're able to, you know, in a democracy, like have a say about the developments going on around us. But it definitely makes it a lot harder for medium density housing because people are very precious with their homes and their land. And there's a lot of resistance to having anything higher density going up around you because of the perceived impact. In 2020, when Lisa returned from Berlin and was living in Melbourne, she and a friend, Andre Versturchel, were one of the winning entrants in a Victorian state government future homes competition. It was a chance to propose a more sustainable way for housing. It wasn't just that we were designing typologies that were suited to the middle ring suburban blocks. We were also involved in a planning scheme amendment. The idea was that they published their designs online, available for builders, developers and housing providers to buy, and go through a more streamlined approval process, reducing appeals. Essentially, you're demonstrating that you're delivering this sort of high-quality, medium-density apartment building, and therefore you're kind of removing some of the obstructions which can come your way in terms of getting planning approvals. Yeah. It's interesting you're talking about planning because I'm yeah. wondering if there's a piece before that which is mm-hmm. actually changing our national psychology about yeah. the idea that, I, Ginger Gorman, I have to have a quarter acre block. Mm. I have to have a house for my life to be worthwhile. That has Mm. to be the place I bring up my family. Is that Mm. the piece before we get to the planning? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, maybe like the big overarching thing is that psyche that's been drilled into us. I think it has a lot to do with the mentality of the generations before us. So like even I think about like my mom's family, like they're Italian immigrants coming here and it's like this opportunity to own your own house and have your own land. A lot of people have kind of sold that promise and it's so deeply ingrained. Do you think density impacts affordability? Because I know you've said in the past, for example, in Melbourne, you can't necessarily live where you want to live. And I've certainly lived in Melbourne and had to commute like hours across town. Mm. Yeah, that, and that's another good point which was sort of a revelation that I had in Berlin. It was like everyone sort of has equal access to the same. It's the same density across the whole city and all of the suburbs. Everyone has access to the same kind of extent of public transport and there's schools and shops and retail kind of like evenly distributed everywhere. And it's a complete opposite to Melbourne and probably Sydney and a lot of Australian cities where, you know, we're building new suburbs on the periphery faster than we can build schools and services. It does mean that if you are forced to buy on the outskirts because that's where you can afford to buy a home, then you you are compromised in terms of access to public transport and 
schools and services. Darina Pajani agrees that we need more medium density housing, but she's also advocating for more apartments. We need high density developments, but we need to do them better. As an urban planner, Darina blames her own profession in part for not prioritising community-minded innovations to these developments. People like myself, we have a little bit of an atonement to make, uh, if you will. We have not designed cities with the kind of density that is visually appealing to people. So what we do in Australia is we go from the single family home, which is the housing typology most people are used to, straight to 20-storey buildings or 30-storey buildings, and there is nothing in between. We don't have those mid-rise European apartments, which are uh, at a pleasant density, human scale, with elegant housing. Inside, people simply are not familiar with those. So when they think high density, they think of these um, heated boxes. Like I live in Queensland, which has a warm climate year-round, and Often the apartment units that are built here are just uh, poorly ventilated heat traps. So if you look at it from that perspective, from the design perspective, it's no wonder that people don't like that kind of housing. While high-density buildings do usually put people closer to amenities like public transport, she wants to see more holistic planning for high-rise housing. Oftentimes they're not even connected with the rest of the street front. I mean, this is a point that I've made over and over in my career. We should not design apartment buildings Y by one. We should go at it street by street, design a whole street front. But then that also allows you to attach amenities to the development. You can have all those ground floors be grocery stores and repair stores and I don't know, butter, fishmongers, clothing stores, all the things that people need in a neighbourhood in addition to housing. While Darina appreciates the need for more of that missing middle, in the midst of the housing crisis, she's not putting all of her eggs into any one basket. The current supply of high-rise, high-density housing is very small considering what Australia needs. And it's much, much smaller than the supply of single-family home stock. So there is the missing middle, yes, that um, that we definitely need, but we also need more um, high-rise, higher-density housing to uh, provide shelter for all of our people. Here in Brisbane, we are at a point where they're homeless on the street. People are living in tents, in parks. So if that's the situation, I'd much rather have people live in high-rises than not have a home at all. I'd like to see housing of all kinds, all typologies. So I'd like to see apartment buildings going from three stories high to 30 stories high, rather than having the whole city, say, be five stories, right? Variety is good for cities. If we're talking about small towns, you can run a small town you know, with stock of single-family homes and just a few small apartment buildings. But if we're talking about proper cities, our capital cities, variety is the key word there. This is a problem that needs quick solutions, but you can't rush property development and you definitely can't change the national psyche overnight. So what can be done to ensure we have sustainable, community-minded homes in the future? 
I mean, we know that developers respond to incentives. So perhaps we need to formulate those incentives in a way that achieves the objectives that we as a society want. So developers could receive high bonuses so they can build taller, say, if they provide a set number of inclusionary units within their building. That could be one one incentive right there that would change the market a little bit. Bill Randolph agrees we've become stuck and something has to shift. Between the planners uh, and the developers uh, and perhaps the architects as well have kind of contributed to the way in which our cities have bifurcated. There are two types of housing being developed at the moment. And what we haven't had too much over the last 10, 15, 20 years is something in between. If it's well provided for, if there's enough open space around it um, and there's plenty of facilities for people to use, then, then why not? I think the problem is it's not built with that in mind in the first place. Lisa Garner has faith that people can and eventually will get behind a better model for housing. While it's only happening at the most grassroots level now, she is seeing attitudes change. I've seen that happen with, I mentioned it before, but the Nightingale models. This was actually an architect practice in Melbourne just being fed up with the way projects were being run by developers and saying, hey, what if we cut out the developer, pull together mortgages of a bunch of people and run this process on our own? And they started their own model and built the first building on the train line in Brunswick. So in like a really kind of tricky site where you would think most people wouldn't want to live, but it was an incredible building. And it just attracted so much attention. And now Nightingale have a wait list of 5,000 people wanting to move into one of these buildings. Wow. That's just one example. But I think, yeah, I think people need to physically experience a space in order to like truly understand and to truly want to spend their money and buy something like that. They need to see it in the flesh. And perhaps once they do see better housing models, they can use their collective voice to encourage planners, developers and mortgage lenders to embrace better models of density too. Thanks for listening to Seriously Social. I'm Ginger Gorman. This podcast is produced on Ngunnawal, Ngambri, Yagara and Turrbal land and we pay our respects to Elders past and present. Seriously Social is produced by Kim Lester, Shez Robinson, engineered by Mark Gargledonk, a.k.a. Baldy, and our executive producers are Bonnie Johnson and Claire McHugh. It is an initiative of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. I want to tell you about a podcast that I absolutely love listening to. It's Outrage and Optimism, a useful weekly guide for anyone wanting to make sense of the complexity of the climate conversation. Whether you're suffering from climate grief or anxiety, are already fired up and full of hope and taking action, or somewhere in between, the podcast will help you navigate feelings of outrage and optimism and leave you feeling informed and inspired. Hosted by Christiana Figuereras, Tom Rivet Karnak, and Paul Dickinson, the trio share their expertise, insight, and humour with the world's climate thought leaders, 
making the show the leading global independent climate podcast. Search Outrage and Optimism wherever you get your podcasts. I'd highly recommend you check it out.